welcome. This is the inaugural podcast from Lodestone Training and Consulting. My name is Jared Ross. I'm the owner of Lodestone, and today I'm joined with Chris Johnson. I am a retired Green Bray. I just recently retired after 20 years of active service. I spent 14 years of that time in the 5th Special Forces Group, which is lovingly referred to by the nickname of the Legion. The Legion. Yep. Very important there. Um, I uh, grew up in the West, so California, Utah, um, was at an average childhood bringing up for a child growing up in the 80s, I guess. You know, lots of uh, good movies, good high quality movies. <laughs> uh, my parents were not uh, into firearms at all. They uh, don't necessarily agree with my politics all the time. Um so I was raised with uh, more kind of geared towards the outdoors and going out and doing things like that. I was an avid Boy Scout in a super active troop where we did a lot of um, backpacking trips, canoeing trips, orienteering. Uh, that gave me my first excitement for uh, th- this world, uh, you know, getting out and getting into nature uh, that I didn't have growing up in the city. Cool. Well, I grew up here in, in, in Pennsylvania. I grew up in southern Lancaster County. I, as I was growing up, I, I hit, I think, all the you know, earmarks of, of somebody growing up in the gun culture. When I, when I turned five, uh, my grandfather bought me a BB gun, and he started teaching me how to shoot. When I turned 12, I got a bolt-action 22. When I uh, turned 18, I bought a glorious $89 Norinco SKS. And then when I turned 21, I celebrated by getting my concealed carry permit. And then I also purchased my first pistol, which was a Taurus PT-101, which was classic. A, oh, yeah. It was the first of many mistakes when it came to, to purchasing firearms. I believe it was a clone of the Beretta 92 chambered in 40 cal. So it's just like the worst of the worst. Do you still have said pistol? Uh, no. As soon as I realized how bad it was, I pawned it off on somebody else. And they, so they, they made a mistake. Made it someone else's problem. That's right story of your life. <laughs> so I uh, did a lot of odd jobs, started working for UPS, and then uh, I was a manager for UPS when 9-11 happened. And then that's when I went ahead and I uh, joined the military. I was with the 82nd Airborne um, Infantry, did a couple tours with them, and then I went to uh, try for Special Forces and got selected, spent a couple of years active duty with Special Forces, left, went to the National Guard with 20th Group, which is a Special Forces uh, National Guard unit and started teaching and training. And I've been doing this now for, for about 10 years, uh, teaching and stuff. So today we're recording at the LTAC HQ at our office, which is uh, conveniently and strategically positioned above, above a gun shop. So if you hear some voices in the background, uh, that's that's the shop doing business, selling what little guns they have left uh, with, with the way things are going today. I think they're actually explaining why they have no inventory and how you get on the waiting list. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably true. So with this being our inaugural uh, podcast, just wanted to take some time for Chris and I to, to share some of our experiences so you get to know us a little bit better. So I'll start with, with sharing you know, some of my experiences of my youth that kind of helped shape me and, and make me the, the person that, that I am. It really comes down to uh, you know, a good family, but then also some influences of, of a couple of people who are outside that family. I already mentioned how my grandfather taught me to shoot when I was five with a BB gun. And it was a 
honor. It was a privilege. It was a nice moment in my life when I came back from my first deployment and I got to look my grandfather in the eyes and inform him that some people had learned the hard way that he taught me how to shoot when I was a kid. And then I just expressed my appreciation to him that, you know, the lessons you taught me when I was five, they paid off during that last deployment. But some of the other uh, things that influenced me as I was growing up was one was my time with the Boy Scouts. Uh, with the troop that I was in, I was probably the most avid outdoors guy. There's a lot of other guys who didn't enjoy going outside so much. They were really into the merit badges. I really could care less about getting flair and, and earning those kind of things. I was more about the experience of, of getting in the outdoors. You didn't like the sash? No, no. I, I didn't like not the a, sash. Not a sash guy? No, no. I was a more uh, let's go camping and then go raiding other camps as, as as a kid. That was that was my what I liked to do. But one of my my scout masters, he was um, an interesting fellow. Where when he was in college, he had a full ride scholarship to the Rhode Island the Rhode Island School of Art. And middle through his uh, through his time there, he left in that institution and left his his scholarship. And he enlisted and went to the 101st Airborne and did a tour in Vietnam with them. Then after he left active duty there, he finished up his schooling, got a commission, and then he became a, a Marine officer where he commanded a Marine infantry platoon. So he's a really interesting guy. And he really, you know, helped get me thinking in a, in a, in a certain way and thinking about, about service. He also, uh, when I was 16, he gave me a copy of Starship Troopers and which is one of the greatest works of fiction that I've ever read. And that really helped my young mind, you know, learn a little bit about what it means to be a soldier, what it means to offer of yourself and, and sacrifice for the greater good of, of, of your community or the greater good of your country. And I really appreciate him for, for giving that. Also, another experience I had, another way that Boy Scouts helped and shaped me is I was able to go to Philmont when I was, I think I was 14. And the group that I was at, we did, it was about a 100-mile about a hundred mile hike as the crow flies, but as the wolf runs, we probably put in about 130 miles of uh, backpacking. And that was a really good experience. It certainly helped prepare me to uh, know what it felt like to have a tick on my back and, and, and to put miles on my feet. So there's really good preparation for going to selection and, and for other stuff. And uh, you want to explain what a tick is for those that are uninitiated? Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, a rock or a backpack on your back. Because it sucks the life out of you. <laughs> yes, it does. And then another guy who really influenced me, he's has since passed away, was uh, my father's cousin. He's kind of crazy. He uh, came over to our house one time and said, hey, look, I've, I've got this gun. You guys want to shoot it? So we went into the backyard, and it was my first experience of seeing a AR-15 uh, in person. So... I shot it, and then my dad shot a little bit, and then one time after my father, you know, shot and then uh, then released. That's when old uh, Lenny, he, my my dad's cousin. That's when he flipped a switch, unbeknownst to my dad. So then my dad squeezed the trigger, and yeah, it was a full auto M16. That uh, he was a pretty good influence. He's a pretty funny guy. And granted, my my grandfather, my father taught me how to shoot and taught me uh, marksmanship. But it was old cousin Lenny. He's the one who he really got me introduced into uh, real uh, real machine guns and, and other stuff. He's a pretty cool guy. So with with that, it's really you know setting my course to to what I wanted to do and where I was going to eventually end up. So uh, you you bring up the scouts and and how influential that was for your childhood. I I completely credit 
the Boy Scouts. And it's a shame that they've become what they've become. I, you know, I, I didn't even want to go there, but but yeah. Yeah, because it's, it, it's not the same organization that we grew up with. You know, again, we're, we're talking about uh, the 80s, early 90s. The, the organization that I was involved in, it wasn't a merit badge uh, troop. It was all about getting out and doing, uh, learning how to be a leader, learning how to be a man. I remember, I mean, this is like one of my pivotal moments, like where I became the man that I am. I was 13, 14, somewhere around there. It was summer. We were on Catalina Island at one of the Boy Scout camps. And I was doing the, uh, you know, it's a Boy Scout camp, so you have to do merit badges. And I was doing the wilderness survival because I thought, yeah, survival, that's cool. I want to do that. That's interesting. And we spent all week going and learning how to like build shelters and purify water and all that stuff. And the final thing, you had to spend the night in your shelter that you had built. And I'm alone in the woods. It's dark. I'm in this, uh, we're going to say it was a Taj Mahal epic level uh, shelter. You know, um, I've never been able to recreate such an awesome shelter. That's my nostalgia for it. If it had rained, I would have been soaking wet. Yeah, it was complete garbage. But I was so proud of it at the time. And I felt really good. I felt, oh, man, I'm confident. Like, I I could survive. This is the first time in my life that I haven't had anyone else to depend on. It was just Chris. And I could do it. If, If, like, everyone disappeared tomorrow, I'm good. I'm all here by myself, super confident. And then I start to hear my peers, other teenage boys start to cry. And man, there it's like doing that run along our dens. <laughs> and anyone that's been in the 82nd knows that that run along our dens. And you're going up that hill and uh you start to see the guys falling out of the formation. And you just you're sucking their soul as they as they, they go by you. You're tired, you're cold, you you don't want to be there, but man you start to hear someone else crying or falling out, man, your motivation goes through the, through the roof. You're like, I can do this. I, I'm better than that guy. It, it gave me such confidence. That one experience that like, I remember coming back from that. I can do anything. I can do anything. I can't, I can't quit because I've done this one thing and I survived when other people were quitting and crying. I didn't. It gave me such confidence and, you know, I can trace so much of my life back to that one summer where there I was learning that I had capabilities. Cool. Cool. And that's, that's really true. That's one of the things that I think we're really missing or is, is not as prevalent as it used to be is giving young men, young women, those kind of experiences, a challenge. That, yeah, yeah. That, that you know, it's not not everyone is, is getting a trophy, but you actually have to work for it. And sometimes you're going to win, sometimes you're going to fail. And that failure, um, that's that, that's that's how you learn. Yeah, that's just as powerful, not more so, as, as a teaching tool. Um, cool. So, with our experiences, and both of us, uh, our journey led us into the army. And one of the reasons why. I joined is again, it goes back to, you know, to that scout master it goes back to, to my parents and some of the things that they instilled in me it goes back to some of the lessons that are taught in starship troopers, where once nine 11 happened, even though I had always had a desire to go in the military, you know, that voice in the back of my head was always telling me, Nope, no, no, not now. But once nine 11 happened, that same voice in the back of my head told me, okay, now, now's your time. 
Now is when you need to go. And I really felt that it was my moral obligation as a citizen to enlist. And that sense of, of duty, that sense of, of, of the true love that I have for this country and for our founding fathers, for those principles of liberty and freedom that we have been endowed with, that we've been blessed with, that we've, we've been gifted I really felt it was my time to to go ahead, and uh, I needed to I needed to serve. I needed to give back. I needed to offer myself as a sacrifice onto the altar of liberty to uh, to protect and, and to defend. So for me, it was really those those noble ideals. That's what why I decided I needed to go. And at the time, shoot, uh, I was going to be married on a Saturday. And it was the Tuesday before our wedding is when 9-11 happened. That's when, you know, they flew those planes. So do you have a hard time remembering your anniversary? No, no, not yeah, at all. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would say you, you have a good landmark there. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it was newly married and my wife, bless her. She you know married a, a guy with an okay job. And then with a couple months, she found herself married to Private Ross, as I enlisted and went in, and some of my decision-making process with joining the military is, you know, what kind of job did I want to do? And again, it goes back to uh, the the propaganda of Starship Troopers, where there's really two types of jobs in the military. There's the guy who's in the ditch with the shovel doing the work, and then there's the guy who who hands them him the shovel. And I did not want to be the guy whose job was to, to hand the shovel off for someone else to do the work. I wanted to be the guy doing the work. Well, let's be honest. I think that you would have made a very, very poor admin person. <laughs> Probably would. You would have lost so much paperwork. I mean, if you were the supply guy, yeah, no. You let's be honest, you pretty much had, you know, to be successful, you had to be infantry. Maybe so. Uh, that's not what my uh, re- recruiter thought. He thought I was crazy when I it came back doing the as probably right. Stuff. He he said, "Hey, w- you can do any job you want in the army. Are you sure you want to go infantry? Like, yes, that, that's what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do. So I went to, to the 82nd and uh, had a good time. You know, I wish that I could say, uh, like Jared, that he had this, like, you know, burning desire to serve as a citizen. Uh, I was completely selfish about it. I joined in 2000. Um, I grew up in, like I said, kind of a more... Um, hippie family that not, not very, uh, combat arms, uh, mentality. I was a photographer, lifelong ambition to be a a photographer for national geographic. I'm not that good of a photographer. I saw the writing on the wall. If I want to, if I want to venture, I want to make it around the world. I gotta, I gotta find something for myself. And I saw the army as a, a great way of doing that. And I was looking at it as something to do for like four years. You know, just do that one enlistment. This was 2000. You know, we we were sending people to Bosnia. That was pretty much it. And I, I got to be honest, what I knew of Bosnia was very limited. Um, so when I joined, I, like Jared, you can do anything you want. I, my ASFAB came back and they're like, oh, my, my recruiter happened to be an Intel guy. And he's like, you should be an Intel guy. And I'm like, oh, why would I want to do that? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I want to be airborne infantry. Because that sounds like the most adventurous thing that I can do. And, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be an SF guy or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not that good. You know, I'm, I'm not crazy. Uh, I was just looking at along the lines of 
what's going to get me a great experience, um, what's going to be positive for me venture-wise. Uh, and again, like I said, I didn't have 9-11 yet. I was in when 9-11 mm-hmm. happened. And so I was looking at it as for completely selfish reasons. And I'll be honest with you. I, I wish that I could say that it was I had this burning desire and love for country. That stuff came later. The, you know, the, the extreme patriotism that I, I, you know, the, the, the desire for Liberty, all of that stuff that didn't exist with 20 until you met me. No, no. And and then I started like, you know, um, you know, teaching and sharing. I'll be honest that it, it, it happened very quickly after I, I joined, you know, the army. Yeah. Um, when I was in basic training and I started to recognize the fact that I'm here with people that are not my brothers. You know, I have two brothers. Um, but I, like to this day, I have uh, Brandon Payne. He is he is still active duty. I'm not going to where, say where he's at. Um, he is a brother that I met in basic training. And that man will be a brother until we pass out of this world and in the next world we'll be brothers because of experiences that we had in basic training together. And that's when I first started to learn that there was something bigger than me. You know, I I didn't grow up in a very patriotic household, you know? I mean, we had like 4th of July because it was 4th of July as a tradition, not as recognizing uh, the importance of liberty. And, you know, when I, I became a parent and with my children, I, I feel that it's my obligation as a parent to teach them those things that I didn't have that I had to learn over time. Yeah. And it's interesting because I see some of my children, they grasp onto it. Like this is the greatest thing. Others are like, ah, you know, that's cool, dad. Yeah. Well, both of us, uh, coincidentally, then both of us went to the 82nd airborne and that's actually how, how we met being stationed in the same place. Before Jared says it, I'm going to jump in and say I was airborne infantry and Jared was para infantry. There is a difference in World War II. We came in by gliders. We didn't jump in and they will always hold that over our heads. Just so I beat him. I beat him to it. Uh huh. So, (laughs) Yes, and you know, I was watching Band of Brothers with the kids, and I like, oh, oh, you see those guys, the gliders? Yeah, ask Chris about that. Uh huh. <laughs> yep. Um, so some of the things that I I experienced with the eighty second. Well, first of all, my experience with eighty second was great. I am so thankful that I went there. I know there's a lot of people who who you know, bad talk or like even in our community like oh that that time i spent with the regular army was horrible it is an excellent place to grow up yeah that that should be the first duty station of everyone yeah i had a really good time there and i learned a lot of valuable life lessons while i was with the 82nd now i I showed up to the 82nd in the summer of 2002 and then um my experience with them was just in a couple of weeks we we went to JRTC, if you know Fort Polk, and we were there and did a, a month long war game. And that was a miserable experience. It's better than Disneyland, <laughs> maybe so. But then after after that, just a couple months after that, in December of two thousand two, I was deployed into Afghanistan, and had had a lot of good experiences there. Is really uh, really neat. Uh, that time I spent there. Um, 
within 20 at the 23 hour mark of being in country my platoon had been pushed out to a small fire base a place called De Rawood, and there we were force protection so we, we guarded this false the small fire base that at the time was occupied by um, an ODA so a 12 man special forces team and then part of an ODB or a, a B team so they were there my platoon a couple of 11 charlies or mortarmen they were there we had some mortars inside the base for for protection and then like i said an ODA and part of an OB, ODB so while we were there um my very first firefight that I, I talk about and I share this experience a lot when I'm teaching mindset classes. So some of you might have heard this story. Some of you, <laughs> you haven't and hear the full story. You got to come to one of the mindset classes because it. I learned a lot from this experience. But basically, what had happened was someone decided to take advantage of uh, of the evening, sort of shooting at us. And I was in one guard tower, and my buddy uh, Darren Withrow, he was in another guard tower, and the guy started shooting towards Darren, and then finally. I opened up, I started to shoot, Darren started to shoot, and then uh, within a couple of seconds, it seemed like we had a lot of guys from, from the platoon were up on the wall, and they were all, you know, shooting to, to return fire. So one of the things I learned from that experience was there was a particular NCO, he was a, an E5, or he was a, a buck sergeant, and from the time I showed up to the platoon in the, in the summer of 2002, up through the time of us being deployed, he was probably the most obnoxious uh, sergeant. He was always looking to smoke people and get after me and get after all the other, other privates and specialists in, in the platoon. And again, that's, that's, that's a normal thing. I know I didn't have the luxury being in the military for a couple of years to get trained up to where I should be to prepare for this deployment. I only had a couple of months. So in hindsight, I can see some of that is, you know, they're just trying to, as quickly as they can, break these guys in. But he was above and beyond being obnoxious and and being abusive and being loud and being loud about it. So what I saw during that firefight, which, you know, that really wasn't much of a firefight, that little gunfight was I was the first person to open up. Then Darren opened up and then other people started getting up on the wall and old Sergeant Hardass, um, he had enough courage to get up on the wall, but then that was it. Uh, as we were shooting and after, you know, the shooting was over I heard this noise and I looked over and he was up on on the wall you know but behind the wall on the ledge and he was almost in a fetal position whining and and making this noise and at first I thought what, had he been shot but then as I looked he wasn't shot he just was scared and whining and and, and crying and I thought that's interesting the loudest guy, the guy who's, you know, strutting around as if he's the toughest guy on the planet, he was the weakest link. Um, and that's something that stuck with me. Usually now, you know, the, the loudest guy in the room, he's the weakest link. He's the one who's going to go out first. That He's making so much noise because he's compensating for, for you know, for his real character. Well, it's like the magic show. Look over here. Look over here. Don't pay attention mm-hmm. to my weakness over here. Exactly. So that was... Uh, Pretty powerful thing that I learned with the 82nd, but I, I had a really good time there. You know, one of the lessons that I learned in the 82nd was everyone is is responsible. The the responsibility that I was given as a private. Uh, I show up, I like I said, I, I was there pre-9-11, uh, and then uh, my unit did not go until 2003. So I had several years to train up before I actually went into combat. But my very first week there, we were getting ready to go to JRTC. 
Fort Polk, Louisiana, better than Disneyland. Hmm. It's like Disneyland underwater, um, limited sleep, limited food, um, lots of rain. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's a good time. They have wild horses on the drop zone, which no one told yes. me. Yeah. Yes. Well, I digress about uh, Fort Polk. Uh, lovely memories. Uh-huh, yeah. Our RPL, which we only had him for that uh that exercise then he got dx'd and, and got replaced <laughs> did it did it make it no no we, we referred to him as jake the snake because he would turn a five click movement into like an 11 one because he just kept couldn't figure out where he was at and just no. kept okay. going back and yeah. forth yeah. and in circles yeah well i remember the week leading up to grtc having to know the company's plan as a private I was constantly, my, my team leader, my squad leader, my platoon leader, they were constantly drilling us on what our mission was, what we were supposed to do, because they know that as soon as we exit that aircraft, we're going to turn into an LGOP, a little group of pissed off paratroopers, and we're going to accomplish the mission because that's what you do. You're in the 82nd. You accomplish the mission, whether it's four privates getting together and be like, hey, we got to seize that hill. We got to hold that objective. Or, hey, we got to take that building or we got to go get that piece of equipment. And that was really neat. And, you know, like this is my first unit. I didn't know any better. I thought every unit was like this. I thought every unit that the private needed to know the same thing that the company commander knew. I didn't know that until I went to the SF qualification course and I was working with guys from other army units that were peers of mine or actually had been in the army longer who didn't know and have the same experiences that I did. When we're sitting there, we're getting ready to do a, an ambush. And they're like, well, I've never done this before. I'm like, bro, you're an E6. Like you've been in the army like eight years. What do you mean? You've never laid in an ambush line. I was laying in ambush lines literally like the second week that I was in the 82nd. Yeah. I was in charge of the ambush line. Yeah. I had, I had a similar experience when I was going through the course uh, and especially at SUT um, that we had some guys from Ranger Bat. And, you know, of course, hey, they're, they're higher in the totem pole in the 82nd. So they had to do their, you know, I'm a ranger. You know, it's a lifestyle, not not a scroll. And and you guys don't know what you're talking about. But it didn't take very long from the, oh, wow, you are squared away. Uh, you do know what you're doing. You know, me from the 82nd. But there were other guys, even from infantry backgrounds, that just didn't have that same real light infantry uh, experience. And, yeah, they, they'd never been taught that. They'd never been uh, told what the mission was from top to bottom before doing something. It was always, you know, just do what I say when I say, and yeah, I, uh, sit here, point that direction. Exactly. Anyone comes down that road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why they didn't have the why. Yeah. And you know, as I became a leader and, and learned other lessons, it's important that your guys understand why that you give that. This is what we're doing because if you're just like, Hey, I need you to look that direction. They're going to look that direction. You know, and, that's and, it. And, and saying that with that background that we both got from the 82nd, explaining that why it's important, that has really translated to how I instruct and teach firearms and, and all the other stuff that we teach. And, and the same with you, Chris, is that why and why that's so important. And that's one of the things that, hey, this is how to do it. But then we explain why to those to our students. We want them to understand that why. Once they they grasp it, the, the full concept. Yeah. Because it's just do as I do. Just mirror me. You know, the, you're not a train, trained monkey. Yeah. You know, you're a human being that thinks, and I'm not going to be there in your gunfight. I might. That might be cool. 
but more than likely, it's your gunfight. Yeah, it's your gunfight. So fight. I need to give you the tools and how to use them and why this tool works in this particular setting. So when you find yourself in that situation, you've got a whole kit bag of stuff to reach into and draw out. Instead of like, uh, this one time in class I did this one drill and uh, I don't know if it's right. Yeah. But if by us explaining it and explaining why you're doing this, they have that knowledge to fall back onto and do what they need to to survive that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with my experience with the 82nd, I was around uh, I, I was around Special Forces soldiers and started watching them and, and had some different experiences that led me to you know to to want to try out myself. Number one recruiter for SF is SF soldiers deployed with regular army troops. It, I, I've had the incident myself where I have uh, got to group and saw the guy that kind of like was like, hey, I want to be that guy. Uh-huh. And then not too long before uh, I retired, I was working with the group headquarters. I had a guy come in. And he's like, do you remember me? And I'm like, no, man, where we had a school together. You know, he's another E7 SF guy. He's like, no. We were in Iraq in 2008. You're the reason I'm here. <laughs> and I, let me tell you, like, that is like, bro, that, that's really powerful. Like, I, I'm, and he's like, no, no. Like, I saw the way that you were willing to change. You know, we were doing a mission. I ended up shaving off my mustache, putting on regular conventional uniform and riding in a striker because that would achieve the mission. And that made an impression on this guy. Cool. This guy was like. Here's this SF guy who who walks around in a Hawaiian shirt most of the time. But to accomplish the mission, he's willing to do whatever he needs to do. Shave off his mustache, put a, a stupid PFC rank on, get yelled at by some regular army guy so that the Iraqis don't assume that he's something else. Uh-huh. And uh, he's like, I want to be that guy. I want to be Chris Johnson. Oh, that's kind of cool. Like No one's ever said that before. <laughs> Well, my very first exposure to special forces was, uh, I'd already mentioned at the 23rd hour mark of being in Afghanistan, we got pushed out to this fire base. So my PL, he's a really good guy. He, he went SF too. I think he went to fifth group though. I haven't seen him since he was my PL. Um, him and then our, our platoon sergeant, they got to remember this is in 2002. So even though every, there were a lot of really experienced, you know, NCOs and as well as our platoon sergeant and platoon leader, um, no one had experienced combat. Nobody. So here we're in country and all of a sudden we get this mission. You guys, you're the first one out of the company who's going to be going and doing something. And then on top of that, oh, here's all your ammo. Oh, wait, we don't have enough ammo for you. So everyone, you're going out and you only have, if you're lucky, a couple of mags of ammo. Don't worry, you'll get resupplied a little bit later. Um, that was reassuring. So reassuring. So both of those two. So you're saying there are ammo shortages even back then. <laughs> yes. So those two, um, they were really getting spun up. I can understand that. They're responsible for these men. They're going to the situation they don't like. They're really getting amped up. So it had a cascading effect. So everyone in the platoon was, was getting amped up. So we flew in a uh, Chinook. And the plan was we're going to land, and then we we practice this a bunch of times. And we're going to exfil from the Chinook and get form this big, you know, horseshoe formation. And they kept saying we could become under sniper fire immediately. You know, the, the, this area is active. We could have sniper fire. We could have sniper fire. So a lot of us, man, I'm going to get out of this this bird, and I'm going to get on the ground, and then we're immediately some snipers going to start shooting at me. So that was we were all really amped up. Helicopter lands. We go charging out. Well, 
I don't know what everybody else. I'll just tell you from my perspective. I went charging out, found my spot, lay down in the prone. So much dust, I couldn't see anything. So I'm in the prone, leaning next to my ruck. And then the schnook goes away. Dust starts to settle down. And like 12 feet away, here's this SF guy on a Polaris four-wheeler, ball cap on, leaning back in his seat, feet propped up on the handlebars, uh, looking at me. And he's like, boy, what are you doing down there on the ground? Like, what is this? And they completely relaxed and completely different than what, how amped up and expecting contact that I was. So I'm like, wow, this, this, this is, you know, the twilight zone. This is kind of crazy. That's hilarious. My, you know, when I infilled into Iraq, we were supposed to jump Uh and we are doing pre-jump every other day. (laughs) And then, and we're not going to go into the reason why we didn't jump Uh because all of you guys out from the three, two, five, you know the political stuff, and uh, we're all still angry about it to this day um, because I would have a mustard stain and Jared wouldn't. Uh, but anyways, we air land in uh, Talil. Uh, we get off the back of the C-130, and we don't know. It's a completely blacked out um, uh, landing strip. We don't know what's there. We're exiting the aircraft. Uh, one of the squad leaders ADs a shotgun because they gave us shotguns <laughs> right before we left. And it's like, oh, well, we'll give them to the, the, you know, squad leaders because they're, you know, the senior NCOs, the, the, the platoon squad leaders get shotguns. Yeah. This guy didn't know anything about a shotgun. He ends up ADing it on the aircraft because he doesn't know anything about the stupid gun, right? You know, an important thing about knowing your equipment. Yeah, really. Um, so everyone is completely amped up. And uh, we get off, we form up a little, uh, little mini cigar. And... Um, same thing. We've got an SF guy there. You know, we're looking around in her nods uh-huh. and you see this guy and he's standing there leaning up against, he wasn't laying back, uh-huh. on, but leaning up on a, a four wheeler. And he's like, Hey man, we got security out. You guys don't need to be in the prone. Go <laughs> and stand up and pick up your rucks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I landed, saw that guy, we got collected and, uh, you know, we moved into the fire base, started getting situated there. And after seeing that, I'm like, man, these, these guys are gods. These guys are, they're, 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 they're incredible. I can never be at that level. I can never be, you know, that that's just so unobtainable. And, um, I really, a lot of us really put them on this pedestal. So I was at the fire base, maybe a day, two days, maybe three days. I don't know. It was really, really soon, very early there. And, a jingle truck showed up loaded with bottles of water and my, uh, my buck sergeant, my, my, my team leader, I won't mention his name. Uh, he tasked me and he tasked, I already mentioned my buddy, Darren Withrow. He tasked the two of us to go ahead and unload this thing. So the two of us with this full jingle truck, you know, the size of a semi trailer, um, filled with water bottles, a lot of which that the cases a plastic had ripped open. So it was just single, like 16 ounce or 20 ounce bottles of water we had to unload. And we're out there doing this for a while. And all of a sudden I hear this voice, Hey, do you guys need a hand? And we turned around and here's this guy sticking his head in big old beard. And, uh, <laughs> we were like, yeah, we could use a hand. And he said, okay, let me get up there. Don't worry guys. I'm just a PV nine, just a PV nine. And he jumps in and he starts giving us a hand. So this PV-9, i.e. the sergeant major for this ODB, he 
jumped in to give us a hand and I was, I was blown away where my, my buck sergeant wasn't so, able to, to help so us. So the out. highest ranking NCO yes. on the entire compound. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, or, or my team leader, he couldn't help us out. But the highest ranking NCO, the special forces guy, he could jump in and he could help us out. I was just, you know, kind of blown away at that. And I, at that moment, like, that's the organization I need to be to with that selfless service, this willingness that, Hey, there's a job that needs to be done. I, I, I can, I'm not doing anything. I he, can lend a hand. He knew who he was. Yeah. But Hey, I got no pride. Yeah. I'm going to get out there and do the job. Yeah. That was awesome. That, that little act, that experience there, that, that sold it for me. My first combat trip, I had a lot of experiences working with fifth group in particular. Uh, the professionalism, that is something that just stood out so much to me. I had good NCOs in my unit, unlike Jared, um, because, you know, we're airborne infantry, um, the best. And uh, <laughs> so I had I had good leaders, good mentors, minus the guy that AD'd the shotgun. No, he was a good guy. He just didn't know how to use a shotgun. Um, <laughs> I know. How do you not know how to use a shotgun, right? It's got a safety. Bro, um, I, I, I could tell stories. That was one of the advantages I had coming into my platoon is I actually knew a little bit, little bit about guns. And some of these guys who were in charge of me all, and just like that guy with the shotgun, he only knew what he knew because the army told him and what it, he didn't exactly. know. Exactly. He, yeah. he got handed it as he was getting on an aircraft. Yeah. No one showed him. Yeah. And you, you really can't fault a guy for that. Um, well, I mean, you could because you should have been man enough to be like, I don't know how to use this. And you keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Exactly. Good point. You know. Um, but the professionalism of the Legion that I saw when I was deployed with them in Baghdad, we had a, a platoon sergeant in our uh, second platoon, I was in first platoon, who had failed out of the Q course. Good guy, good NCO, just didn't have what it took to be a, a Green Beret. Uh, he was actually a Ross, come to think of it. Yeah, Sergeant First Class Ross. Oh. Um, actually, he was LDS even. That's a story for another time. Mm-hmm. But uh, he had gone through the Q course. LSD? Didn't, what? Yeah. Keep going. Di- didn't make it through. One of the guys that he had gone through the Q course with was on the ODA that was in Baghdad at the same camp that we were at. So they were using us as their, you know, cordon. You know, they didn't have a FID partner. They didn't have any Iraqis that they were working with. So when they needed the extra lift, you know, like they did in Afghanistan, they came to the 82nd. Mm-hmm. You know, these are switched on infantry kids. They're they're perfect. Uh, we did a bunch of missions with them. Well, this one night, the SF guys come by to their buddy. Hey, Ross, you got uh, you guys going out tonight? We're, we've got nothing going on. We're bored. We just want to get. We just want to do the job. It's it's what SF guys do. We want to do the job. Well, second platoon wasn't going out. First platoon, my platoon was. And so I've got these three SF guys that show up and they're like, Hey, we want to roll with you. Yeah. We're going to turn SF guys down. I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Come on. You know, and this is like July Oh no, this is later into the summer. So like August, September uh, in Baghdad. So we, we had been established. We were doing some good missions. We were doing some good stuff. Of course. Yeah. We're going to take these guys with us. And I, I was, I had taken over as the squad leader. Um, we're getting ready to go out, and I've got this E7, this SF guy, big old mustache, and I, he's just like, look, man, I'm I'm just a member of your squad. You just tell me what to do. And he gave me respect. I mean, this is a guy that 
as the same rank as my platoon sergeant mm-hmm. who is looking at me like, no, man, I'm just here. You, t- you, you tell me what to I, do. I'm just a PV seven. I'm just a PV seven. And the respect that he gave me, like, no, you know what you're doing. And he, I was looking at this guy like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to defer to him because you know, he is the expert. And he's like, no, you got this, man. You've been in country. You know what you're doing. And that, that huge respect that he gave, that was one of the like defining moments. Like, yes, I am going to selection. Like I'd already made the decision. I'm going to selection, but this is, this is more fuel for that fire. I want to be in that professional organization. I want to be working with men that want to be there. I want to be working with men that this is where their hearts are. Yeah. Their hearts are in the fight. I want to go to work and not have to wake people up to do PT. I want to show up to work and have people that are challenging me. And that's what I saw in, in group. If I go there, they're going to make me into a better man. Absolutely. So when, when did you end up going to selection? So I went to selection right after I got home in 2004. So we got home in February of 2004. Um, I went to selection in April of 2004. Okay. So we had, uh, the unit went actually on block leave. My, my battalion went on block leave. Uh, we had come back, we had done all our like, you know, reintegration, which wasn't nearly what it became later. Um, unit goes on leave and I went to selection. There were nine of us from my battalion that went to selection. And it was one of those things that when things were bad in selection, we'd all look at each other and be like, yeah, but we know where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, not all nine of us got selected. Um, but the four of us that did, you know, we kept seeing each other like, yeah, yeah, we know where we're, we know why we're here. Right on. So when I went to Iraq, we I think we ripped you guys because I got to Iraq. It was February of 04. It was six months after we got back from from Afghanistan. Some of the unit wasn't ready. Uh, they failed one of their eval. So then we kind of got surprised that, okay, you guys need to go. So I was there and I think it was February of 04. And then I went to, to selection after I got back from that trip. I went in uh, February of 05 is when I, when I went to selection. It was a good time. So, you know, why did I go to selection? Why did I want to come a Green Beret? What does it mean to, to be a Green Beret? You know, I've already shared a couple of of reasons why I wanted to go and, and some of the impressions that, that some of them had, had made on me. But now that I have earned that Green Beret, and now I've spent some time in group, uh, really next to uh, the relationship I have with my wife and my kids, being a Green Beret and the relationship that I've shared with some of the guys on, on my team, they've, they're, uh, they're the most choice experiences and most choice individuals that I, I've had the privilege of working with. You know, for me, being a Green Beret, again, I know I'm really romantic about about some of my ideals and stuff, but it's just an extension of, of my patriotism and my desire to to serve and my desire to defend liberty and freedom. I, I mean, I love our our motto. Depressively bear. Yeah, I, to, to free the oppressed. And that is really, um, that, that's really why I wanted to be a Green Beret. And that's, that's really what it means to me. I uphold and I honor and love the principles that are instilled in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution so much that uh, being Green Beret is the greatest way that I am able to 
stand up for, or I've been able to, to stand up for and to protect those freedoms and those ideals and, and those, uh, those uh, principles of liberty. It was interesting. After I left active duty and I went to the National Guard and I wanted to start working at a school called Safawak, which is um, the Special Forces Advanced Urban Combat, uh, you know, for, for 20th Group. And I went there and I was kind of trying out. First, you have to go as a student, really, before that they'll pick you up as an instructor, um, even though I'd already done Safawak with 5th Group. So I was there doing that and I was just trying to get to know some of the cadre. And uh, the NCIC, who um, who was there, who was running it at the time, he, he he was talking, and I was joining some of the conversation, and we started talking about freedom. We started talking about liberty. We started talking about uh, the things that it took to preserve that liberty. And after he sensed my sincere desire and my understanding of you know. I mentioned earlier my desire and my um, willingness to offer myself on the sacrifice of you know, the altar of, of, of liberty, altar of freedom, you know, willing to, to do that. He said I had passed. I had passed the, the, the bona fides, and he would allow me into, into that circle to uh, train the Green Berets there at, at that school. And one of his biggest things was, you know, when, when things start to fall apart, when, uh, when if and when things happen in this nation. He said, it's going to be people like you and other good green berets who have an idea, who have an understanding of what real freedom and liberty is. You're going to be the people who are going to help lead and help train and help, you know, uplift and help preserve the constitution of the United States and help preserve our, our nation. And, uh, anyways, that's, that's really what being a green beret means to me is that great defender of, of our constitution and not just a piece of paper or not just a flag but the truths, the principles that the Constitution of the United States and that flag represent. So that's what, to me, being a Green Beret means. How about you, Chris? Yeah, it's hard to follow that. <laughs> you, you, you really nail it. Like I said, I didn't grow up with that, you know, extreme patriotism where, where I believe in something greater myself. That was something that I definitely grew into as, as a man. And, I, you know, that, that's one of the things that separates a man from, you know, a child, a boy. You know, a, a child is always thinking of themselves. What can I get from me? Um, as I became a Green Beret, as I, you know, furthered my career as a soldier, I started to realize that there is something more than me. And truly understanding those principles and ideals of liberty are so important. And our ability to understand those principles and to convey those principles and to protect those principles. There are times that I feel that is my sole purpose here on this earth. That is why I'm here. I can sit here and think about all the things that I enjoy as, as Chris. And that's the, the child in me. I, you know, my wife will tell you that I'm 15 years old. Uh, you know, I would rather be playing on the Xbox, but that is not who I'm here on the earth to be. And to be the man is to separate that and not be playing on the Xbox, but to be preserving liberty. That is what makes me who I am. That's where I change from that boy into that man, where I'm here to do something for someone else, to sacrifice my time my talents, um, my abilities for that to, 
to increase the cause of liberty. You know, I, I made the joke earlier about I'm not that great of a photographer. I love photography. Uh, that that is that's a lot of the time that's where my heart's at. I enjoy shooting. I don't love it as much as photography, but I'm a better shooter than I am a <laughs> photographer. You know, um, and I, I recognize that that is the talent that I've been given. And you know, we're taught that we're supposed to amplify our talents. And you know, what kind of person would I be if if I had these talents and I used them selfishly? You know, um, now I'm not. I'm not talking down to any of the, you know, people that they, they go out and become competitive shooters and things like that. That That's great. I'm glad that they found a way to enjoy their hobby and things like that. Um, but there is a difference where you have a talent and you choose to use that talent for a righteous purpose. You know, I the very first school that I was the honor grad in was a lock picking course. <laughs> it was a breaking and entering course. And I remember my team, they were like, um, Chris, you're the moral compass of the team. You shouldn't be the burglar. Now and that, it, that's all the more reason for you exactly, to be Exactly. That, yeah. That's exactly what I came out of that with is, no, the man that has these talents should be the man that uses them for a moral purpose. The fact that I have these skills and I'm, I'm good at it, uh, you know, like I look at a door lock and... Well, let's be honest. The only thing that if I really want in that house, I'm in that house. So what keeps me from getting in that house is my morality. And, you know, I'll have the conversation with guys are like, oh, you know, I'm not a good person. I'm like, no, you are a good person. You are a very, very moral man. Because if you weren't, you would use these talents that you have for nefarious activities. Mm -hmm. You'd be using these things to better yourself. But instead, you're not. You know, you're a protector. And I, I think that's very important for us. Whether we like it or not, that's who we are. Embrace it and and do good things with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, while I was active, I had all kinds of really cool experiences. Um, a, a lot of, it's just a privilege being there, uh, being in group and, and spending that time there. I learned so much. Um couple things that I've been thinking about recently that I experienced in group and then I've been able to to, to realize and in some degrees replicate and that is um, one was I quickly realized I was very very effective working with uh, our partner forces and started to see how I was more effective than, than some of the other guys on, on my team some guys who had more experience than me and every time so far that I've deployed and worked with a partner force or done a J set or, or things like that. Um, well, not so much the J sets, but, but definitely the, the deployments where I've been able to spend time with them is I've been able to truly love the guys I was working with truly love <laughs> might not have trusted them all, but, but truly been able to, to, to love them. And, you, you recognize them as brothers. Yeah. And, and they could feel that love. And once they realize that I actually care, uh, then it got to the point where, you know, we could do just about anything. Like um, I started off in, in working with, with ISOF and trying to build rapport with them. And they saw the, the, the 1911 on my hip and they, a lot of them were looking at that. And I'm like, oh, 1911, John Browning. See the M2 over there, the 50 cal, John Browning. John Browning, he's, 
because they were in awe of both of those systems. Like, hey, he, he's from my tribe. I, I'm, I'm in his tribe. I'm, I'm, I'm one of his people. And, uh, you know, it started there, but, and I tried a lot of different things, but really what it got down to is just them feeling that, that I cared. I was giving them everything that I could when it came to training. And then they, they responded in that. And, uh, there were a couple of times when, you know, that the ice off and the guys specifically I was working with, you know, they expressed their, their love to me. We love you. We, we know that you care. So, you know, they would follow me or just about anywhere when we'd go on missions and stuff. And I had a tighter relationship with them than some of the other guys on my team, except for my, uh, my team leader. He also was very, very tight with them. And again, he's another guy who, who really loved them and that learning that, Oh, the most effective way to work with these other people is to show that love and to actually sincerely, you know, love them for who they are. That was, uh, that, that's really one of the keys to, to success to like the last, the last trip I was on, um, when it was time to leave the unit that we were working with gave my team, uh, an, an attaboy, you know, a plaque and, 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 and gift. And then they gave me one and, uh, all these other guys who are whining and complaining the entire deployment with all these people, this, that, and that, you know, I just looked at them and I see, see, see the difference. I accepted them. I loved them, trained hard with them. And you know, that, that stupid little token, I shouldn't say that, but that, that, that token, um, of their appreciation, I, I got one, but, but you didn't because I cared. You were going to say something. Yeah. You know, so my first, uh, deployment as an SF guy, uh, Again, it was Iraq. I was working with mm-hmm. uh, the Iraqis. We had a um, a SWAT uh, company uh, that we were working with of Iraqi police. And when it began, I looked at it like I'm just there to train them. Uh, my Arabic was poor, so I didn't do a lot of socialization with them uh, because, you know, I, I, I felt self-conscious about, you know, I, I can't talk to these guys like some of the other guys on the team. Um, and I kept my distance from them and it was a nine month trip. And by the end, especially working with them, I started to, you know, this, this self-consciousness, I got to lose that. I, I, I can't have that. I'm never going to learn Arabic if I don't go out there and try. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started, you know, it, it's the joke of, I broke bread with these guys. Well, I broke bread with these guys. I can't speak with them, but I can eat with them. And you can make all the jokes you want about eating with your hands out of the the rice bowl with them. Hey, they brought out the goat and I ate cheek meat, you know, and I, I wasn't disgusted by it. Bacha. Sure. Let's do this. Um, and I bonded with these guys. Yeah. Weirdly. I mean, you know, a lot of it was over food. It wasn't really on the range. It was the, the time afterwards. Yeah. Well, it was one of the things that I, I've told you before that one of the things that, uh, I think endeared me to, to those guys at least on that first trip when I was working with ISOF is I would go over with them and, and, and hang out at their place and, and watch that Turkish soap yeah, opera yeah, Valley yeah, of the Wolves. Exactly. And because I would watch their show with him, couldn't understand a thing, but spend time it, and watch. It was important them. to them. Yeah. You made it important to you. So as that, as that trip went on, I, I became, I, I did, I went out more to try and, and become friends with them. We had six months off where we came back here to the States and refit. And I went to a couple schools, um, spent about yeah 82 days at the house and then deployed again for another nine months, <laughs> went right back to the same place. And they didn't have a gift for me when I left, but when they knew that I was coming back, yeah, I'm a huge sunflower seed guy. Like that's my thing, you know? And like, I'd always be out there training with these guys and I have a pile of sunflower seeds in my mouth and I'd be spitting them out. 
when I showed up in the very first day that, that we're there and they, they, you know, they get in their little formation and they're all excited that I'm there. And they're just like, you can tell there's this like anticipation, uh-huh. you know, I'm like, okay. You know, and then finally, um, and we actually called him the Iraqi Royce. Uh, the Iraqi Royce comes running up to me and he had this ginormous bag of sunflower seeds that they had gotten for me because they know that Chris, when he's training, uh-huh. he's got sunflower seeds. That's awesome. Yeah. And so they're like, we got you enough sunflower seeds that you can give us good training. And it, I mean, it, it's, and, it's and a simple- early, earlier when I, when I said that silly or, or whatever, you know, I didn't mean to, uh, Negate it, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that simple little act of that, sunflower that seeds, simple spoke thing, volumes. It, it meant that you know, like, hey, they recognized the value of me, yeah. and that, like I was part of them. And you know, they, they a lot of these guys were um, from the the cocky tribe, and the uh, the cocky tribe are, are they're they're very um, cocky. <sighs> yes, cocky. No, they are. Uh, their mustaches mean something. Okay. Yeah. So like they, they wax out their mustaches yeah, yeah. and like, you know, they're, they're right there on the border of uh, Kurdistan. And so like some are Arabs, some yeah, are, yeah. you know, it, it, it's very complicated. The, the Colonel, we we're sitting there and I, I'd grown my mustache out by this point and I was waxing it and, you know, doing the whole curl uh-huh. thing and everything. He turns to my team leader one day and he says, you, you are not cocky. Chris, Chris is cocky. <laughs> awesome. Yes, I was cocky. Uh, but, you know, being identified and like, no, you're you're in the tribe. Like, yeah, you're, yeah. you're one of us. The confidence that that gives you as as a leader, like they're recognizing me, I'm recognizing them. They were willing to follow me anywhere and do anything with me. And moreover, I was willing to lead them anywhere. Yeah. Where the flip side, Afghanistan, I did not, and I tried. I mean, I would go over and have, I'd drink so much chai and, and I'd eat so much goat and I would do so many things trying to build that rapport, but the cultures just yeah did, weren't the same. Where my Iraqis, like, I will go to Iraq tomorrow. Like, I, I view, like, there's work to be done there. Afghanistan, not so much, brother. Yeah. Not so much. You just reminded me, I... I did a mission and um, we started with four helicopters and when all four landed at our base, one went down due to maintenance. So we had to cut some guys and we had to, uh, you know, cram more people in the other three. <coughs> and um, it was, you know, my team and, 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 and the ice off. So we picked up and we had three objectives. We hit two simultaneous and then we picked up and we went to a third. So after we landed at the third, that's when the second helicopter went down due to uh, um, mechanical issues. So then now we only had two birds able to lift people out and we had more people. So I readily volunteered, hey, I'll stay. And my team leader stayed with me. And then we had some of uh, the Iraqis who, you know, who were working with us. They volunteered, yeah, we'll, we'll stay. So, uh, you know, because I love them and they love me. We trusted each other. So... We had already hit three objectives. Everybody in the world knew that we were there and it was going to be a good 45 minutes to maybe an hour and 15 minutes turnaround time from the time the, those birds would leave and the next one, you know, they drop people off and come back and pick us up. So we had no idea what we were going to be left to. So we quick formed a little perimeter. They all took off and, and then we waited. 
And thankfully, nothing happened. Thankfully, nobody uh, messed with us because there weren't very many of us there. But it was just that that feeling, that, that absolute trust and love with these guys and with my team leader. That, and the confidence yeah. that, that you have when you know that these people have your back. Yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. So I was only in, uh, I was only on active duty for, well, I left active duty in 2012, middle of 2012. And then I, I came to, uh, to the national guard and immediately joined 20th group. I already mentioned some of that mentioned. I, um, got picked up at Cephalic. So we run Cephalic about three times a year, give or take sometimes more, sometimes less, but I worked at Cephalic for about three and a half years and it was lots of fun. I learned tons running, uh, you know, helping to run the range and then then taking it over for a couple classes, um, the flat range, as well as doing a lot of force on force and just, just a privilege working in that environment and and learning from, from some of those guys. Um, the national guard is really SF is, is really interesting where at Safalc, I was probably able to see every company in 20th group, plus a lot of teams from other groups that came. And one of the biggest takeaways, one of the things I've learned from, from the Guard SF is that the president is not going to call one of our teams and say, hey, this just happened, go. And then that National Guard SF team is going to pick up and, and be in the air in six hours. No, that, that's not going to be us. Active duty team, sure, uh, but not us. But the thing that I learned is that because it is the Guard, and there's so many really cool guys that I'm working around. Um, this guy, he he runs his own construction company. This guy works for a government agency. This other guy is is a physician's assistant. You know, everyone in the guard, they, a lot of them have all these different jobs, so a lot more talent, a lot more experiences. So what's cool is give us a good three months to to gel and to train up as a team, then we might even be more capable than than a lot of active duty teams because when you're active duty having lived that life you know it's day in day out that's what you're doing and where's your extra experience coming from well i'm going to send to a school but what we don't have is that guy who who runs his own construction company or that guy whose day job is working for an intelligence agency or or somebody else's day job who who's a small businessman you know kind of kind of like myself so it's the guard is really interesting again we're not going to get that phone call hey six hours from now wheels up you're going but give us a, a little bit of time to, to get that good train up and the capabilities and the talent is, is phenomenal. That's there. I've really had a, a good time learning from a lot of people and, and spending some time in, in the national guard. Um, so again, why, why did I leave? Well, really my wife and I who were united in the, you know, go join the military. We were united, go, um, go try selection, go SF. My wife and I've been united through all these major decisions when it came time to leave, we really felt that it was important for us to uh, to start teaching and training. Uh, we both, um, because of some experiences that we have, are both pretty passionate about doing that. And uh, that love that I have had for, uh, you know, the partner forces I've worked with, that love now is, you know, starting to translate into, into working with a lot of other people. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I, I left and... Uh, active duty and have really enjoyed my time that I've had in the national guard. You know, you bring up the working with the, the, the students that we have and, and starting to build those relationships. I completely agree with you. As I was getting ready to retire, um, Jared invited me up here. I started teaching some classes. I've had several of the same students in multiple different classes. And yeah, I'm, 
I completely am developing that, that trust that, you know, if something is going on, there are some good people out there. We, we have good people here in America. Probably one of the things that I enjoy the best about being an instructor here at uh, Lodestone is the fact that I'm training law enforcement. I'm training good American citizens. I'm passing these these lessons that I've learned over the years onto these good people so that they have those tools in their their kit bag if they ever find themselves in that gunfight that they're they're prepared for it. And it is I'll be honest, it has made my retirement, my transition out of off the team um, into the civilian world. It's made it easy. Yeah, it certainly helps. I I know um, one of the nice things about teaching at Cephalic for a little while, especially almost immediately after I left active duty, was oh I'm 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 in a bird again. Oh I I've got I'm a man again. I, I I'm gonna fast rope and do something. You know, just little doses of like yeah yeah you're 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 still in the game. Yeah, we were down there at, at Gunpowder with you guys, and they're like, hey, you retired, but we can still uh-huh. get you back into the guard and. It is tempting. Yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll make the statement that I miss skydiving for free. <laughs> I miss uh, flying around in helicopters. And man, ammo is expensive. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I never truly appreciated the American taxpayer. And those of you who are listening, don't hate me too much. Uh, but it I, was not our decision. But I was. Uh, Early range, when I was in fifth group, we had to shoot up a lot of 50 cal. So my team was out there with our Mauduces, and we're shooting, and we're shooting, and we're shooting, and we got to keep shooting this ammo. And it just got to the point where this is ridiculous, but we had to keep shooting it anyways. So we shot a lot until all the ammo was gone. And then a couple months after that... And what people right now think is a lot, that's not a lot when what it, we, we're talking about a lot like i don't know ten thousand rounds of 50 cal yeah. at, at least yeah and um so a couple months after that being fort campbell i took some of my older boys over to to knob creek i'd always wanted to be you know grew up reading about knob creek and the machine gun shoots so i took them there and then i saw people standing in line for a couple of hours to spend i don't know two hundred dollars to get behind a mall deuce and boop 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 boop, boop. that was it they, they shot their 10 rounds and they were done I felt so ashamed of, of <laughs> shooting all that ammo and just like being so cavalier about it. Uh, that's yeah. So I, I have never been quite so cavalier again after that. Uh, that just wasn't fair. I like it. Every time we put a, a photo up of like a, a belt fed or something uh-huh. on Instagram, someone's like, when's the, the LTAC uh, uh, belt fed class. And I'm always like, if you guys could afford the ammo, I'll run the class. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, like you, you guys can provide the ammo. I'll find the machine guns. Absolutely. Well, I'd mentioned earlier that my wife and I were both pretty motivated, you know, in, in leaving the National Guard and, uh, sorry, not National Guard, but leaving the regular army in order to allow us to teach and train. And that really came down to what would made that decision for us, or what, I guess what started that decision to do that was early on, even before I got to fifth group while I was going through the Q course, um, I know some of you listening have heard the story. Others of you, this is your first time, but we were living in a bad part of Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's not called Vietnam for nothing. And one morning when I went to come in to, to go do PT, a couple of guys decided they were going to break into my home. 
And my wife, who grew up in an area where she really wasn't around firearms, as we were dating, she was like, eh, I kind of like you. So since I like you, I guess I'll tolerate you taking me to the range and showing me how to shoot a little bit. And then after we were married, same attitude. Eh, I kind of like you. I guess I kind of want this marriage thing to work. So I'll tolerate some firearms being in the home. And again, I'll tolerate you taking me to the range to, uh, to teach me how to shoot her. It definitely wasn't her passion. Her heart definitely wasn't in it, but she was doing it because, okay, here's a big sacrifice for me as, as I want our marriage to work and, and to be your wife. Cause I guess it's kind of important to you. So I wasn't there. I was at Fort Bragg. She was almost back to sleep. She heard the noise um, coming from a door that we had a carport next to our house. And there was a door that led from the carport into our, our kitchen. She heard that, that door being moved. She realized what was happening. She grabbed the Mossberg 590 shotgun from underneath the bed. Because we had made a plan, because we had talked about it before, she knew that she needed to get out of the bedroom. Because if she was the, were to wait in the bedroom and the threats were to come down that hallway, she would be very reluctant and probably wouldn't shoot because she'd be afraid using a shotgun that if she missed or even if she hit that behind the hallway was drywall. What was behind the drywall was some of our sleeping children. So she knew she needed to get out into the hallway and she knew she needed to advance towards the sound of that threat, the sound of those people breaking in in order to protect our children. And lucky for her and more especially lucky for those guys, um, they had a lookout who was looking again at a carport. There was a window and you could see into our living room that looked right down the hallway. So when he saw this pissed off redheaded woman walking down the hallway, uh, with a shotgun, he yelled and the guys who were already into in the house, they, at this point had the door was open and they were in the kitchen. They, they took off and, and they ran. And so she waited there at the end of the hallway, you know, called 911, got, got the police there. But because of all that prior preparation and that training, um, she was able to protect herself and more importantly, protect her children. And with that experience really, you know, motivated me and has motivated her. She does so much on the backside support and all the, a lot of logistical stuff um, for the company has really motivated us to teach and to train and to help empower other people. So if and when, they're faced with that similar situation. You know, it's their situation. It's their gunfight. And I've done as much as I can possibly do to prepare them that they might be successful, that they might preserve their life and more importantly, preserve the lives of, of their loved ones. That is really why I've started this and why I've been teaching, why I've been training now for, for just about 10 years. And, and like Chris had mentioned, it's a privilege to work with, with civilians it's a privilege to work with law enforcement and military and, and work with all the above. It's, it's awesome. It's, it, it's fun to be able to do that. One of the second and third order effects of running some of these classes that I had never thought of until after we've done it was since some of them and so many of them are open enrollment classes, we have civilians that are in there. We also have law enforcement who show up to those classes who want to learn and want to improve themselves. And it's great to see law enforcement and civilians working together, training together, and realizing that they have each other's backs. Um, that's I would have never thought that before, but having seen it and run it and experienced it, that is one of the great greatest things about the, at least some of the results we've had in some of our classes. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, um, it, it is a thin blue line, 
you know, who has the, the back? I mean, if, if things do degrade, who's going to come? Who's the QRF? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's a, a duty that we have. You know, we were driving and you made a, a, an excellent point about, you know, let's let's go back 100 years. Let's go back, you know, 150 years. We were all farmers. We were all doing our businesses, whatever. And we're like, hey, you know, I don't have the time to dedicate to uh, security. It's my responsibility, but I don't have the time because I'm doing this other thing. So you, this other individual in the group, I'm going to pay you some so that you can be responsible for security for, for our little village or, or whatever, you know. We gave them, we gave them that, that power, but it wasn't their sole responsibility. We weren't, you know, I still have responsibility for my own security and yes, he is, he's the patrolman. He's the policeman, but he's only doing naturally what everyone has. Everyone else has that responsibility. responsibility. And he's one man. So if the mob comes, he's not there to defend against the mob all by himself. He is backed up by the citizenry, you know, and nothing has changed. Yeah. We're still doing the same thing. We're giving a portion of our, you know, income to those individuals so that they can do the patrol. But if the mob comes, if, if the, the violence is there, you know, it's, you go back to the World War II. If I invade America, there's a rifle behind every blade of grass. Mm-hmm. The, the, the idea, the concept is every citizen has a duty and responsibility to protect the liberty of this nation. Yep. I absolutely agree. Of course, they're your words. Uh, I'm just quoting you. Well, loosely. And, you know, I didn't come with that idea. I read that analogy from a good talk. I encourage everyone to, to, you can get it on our website. It's on our, on our Intel or our blog page or whatever it's currently called. Uh, but it's the proper role of government by the honorable Ezra Taft Benson. That's where I got that, that, that idea. That's where I first learned that principle it's from him. Highly encourage you to, uh, to read that it right now with all the craziness going on and all the, uh, socialist and communist and Marxist ideals that are being floated and they're being taught to uh, our youth and to others. It's, it's more applicable now than, than when it was given when he gave the talk, I think in the sixties. Hmm. Kind of like you knew it was coming. Yeah. No kidding. So Chris, now you're, uh, now you've left active duty. You're up here. What do you see the future for Lodestone? <clears throat> Well, I definitely see growth. Um, the fact that I'm up here now gives me a lot more ability to focus on growing different content. You've got all the, the shooting classes in the bag. I mean, we have a great uh, curriculum. We have a great program, uh, good level one, two, and three, that basic, intermediate, and advanced courses. I see us expanding into, and this is a lot driven by the community. You guys out there in the community who have asked for this stuff. So like, hey, let's do a land nav course. You know, we, it started with a seminar. Like, I'm just going to teach you guys how to find a grid, how to use a map, what, the, how the tools work. And that very quickly grew into, well, we actually need to go out in the woods and do this. And so we have the, the day and night, uh, you know, day one, we come, we do a little bit of land nav. We do some lanes. 
we spend the night out there. We do some primitive survival stuff. Uh, we do the night land nav, uh, which I think is key. It's often, you know, we often train during the day. We often skip the night training, you know. Uh, that is something that I like the fact we're incorporating so much of night into our, our classes. And then we do another day of land nav. And that's growing into a, a land nav two, where we're doing larger lanes, um, more specific type stuff, where it's not just the orienteering of walking on azimuth, but using multiple maps and the abilities, just throwing stuff over there, aren't you? <clears throat> Use multiple maps and different disciplines so that you have those survival skills and you have that confidence. Um, again, you know, I'm not going to say that we're, we're going to replace the Boy Scouts, but there is a lack of leadership school out there for the average citizen. So incorporating some more of these leadership type tasks, you mm -hmm. know, uh, the intelligence uh, course. So we have the intelligence seminar. We're going to have the intelligence course, learning how to do these things for yourself. Uh, the SUT courses. Yeah, you're going to come and you're going to learn some formations and, and things like that. But really what you're coming to do is that's a leadership school. Exactly. And that's it's three days and five days, at least the, the current classes we have. And yeah, like you said, you're going to be learning formations and walking in the woods and that kind of stuff. But really the whole point of it is designed to teach leadership, give you that experience of, Oh, I've the pressure's on me. Everyone's looking to me. And then after you experience that, then it's your turn to be the follower and it's somebody else's turn to, to step up and be the leader. And you know, these things directly translate into every aspect of our lives, you know, whether it's being that, that good spouse, that husband, father, mother, um, wife, knowing how to lead and follow, and when and where to do those things. It's so important. In the workplace, you know, people make the, oh, I'm an alpha male, you know. Are you? Or are you really a follower? Do you know how to make decisions? Do you know how to plan? And when you make that plan, do you have the ability of communicating that plan to those that you're working with? Are you truly leading them or are you just instructing them how you want your vision to happen? Are you giving them the why of, of things? so that they understand what the vision is and why the vision is that way. You know, the SUT class, people think, oh, well, you know, that may not be for me. I'm not, you know, I don't want to go out and walk in the woods. No, this class is for everyone. This is, hey, I own my own business. Shoot, I'm in a Fortune 500 company and I wear, you know, a suit and tie and I get flown in a helicopter to work. You need to come to this class. You need to come out and you need to walk in the woods and get put into these problems that you didn't get in college that you didn't get in business school that are different solving that problem the same techniques are going to work and they're going to apply but it is different and it forces you to think um you know that's one of the things that i know i've stressed for years and, and you also stress and that's the difference between a truth or principle and a technique too many people whatever it is in, in their own business life, you know, work life or, or shooting firearms or, or whatever the case may be. Too many people get hung up on their individual technique or a technique that was successful that somebody showed them that they, uh, that now they've adopted and they don't understand the why. So what we're really big on is teaching those truths, those principles. So, so they understand the why and that understanding then allows them to roll and adjust and vary their techniques depending on whatever the circumstances might be. And that's some of this 
these classes the way they're designed, whether it is just firearms or, or the SUT class that you're, that you're talking about, we are trying to teach people those truths, those fundamental truths, those principles that never waver so that when they are faced with a new and a unique circumstance, as long as they understand the truth, they can create whatever technique will be successful based upon that, that truth. Um, yeah, I, I use the example sometimes in classes about holding guns sideways. It's And it's silly, that technique. Well, best I can figure out and that I've researched, that, that originally came from individuals shooting outside of helicopters and turning their guns on the side so the rounds would eject down instead of going up and hitting the, the propellers. So it's what makes sense, that that technique makes complete sense based on, on that that truth. I don't want those rounds, I don't want the, the brass to hit the uh, the propellers. But then now you take that same technique to somebody on the street or somebody else in a fight and they want to turn their gun to the side because that's how you know they saw it on whatever movie or television show. Now it, it just doesn't make sense. And they're not nearly as good or nearly as accurate as they could be. Again, it's technique, technique. One, but- one of my biggest frustrations as an instructor mm-hmm. is when people like, what is the, you know, how do I get from A to Z without going through the alphabet? <laughs> You know, it's, I just want to be there Mm -hmm. in this society that we're in. We're in an instant gratification society where, yeah, I snap my fingers and I have it. It takes a work and you have to understand that I I can't skip steps. And that's one of the things we teach those fundamentals for that reason, because you may find yourself in a situation where suddenly you're standing at G you started at a, but now you're standing at G you have to take that moment to fix it. What am I missing? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do? And that's why you got to learn those principles. Absolutely. And that, again, we're talking firearms, but that, that carries to every aspect of your life. Yeah. I mean, the what you learn doing land nav, a, a great example is how many people in this day and age go to the woods by themselves in the dark. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, going through the Q course... I heard grown men, again, that flashback to my childhood, I heard grown men weeping because they were in the dark and they were scared. The confidence that that gives, you know, I can be in the woods at night in the darkness by myself and I know how to get out of it. I know how to recover myself. I love passing that on to people. I love empowering people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think... I think we've we've talked about a lot, shared a lot. You listening, you've get to learn a little bit about us and, and see who we are. Chris, you have any final uh, parting words you'd like to to share before we go? I just look forward to doing this again. And there's so much information that we have, that, and I think this is a great platform to get out to a wider audience, especially those that you know they're too far, they can't come to a class, you know once a month that they're they live in idaho or something they've got to wait till we go to one of our away classes that that we come out there Uh, shoot i mean next year we're going to alaska because there are good people everywhere that need this training and getting out there and getting it to them so that they have it and i like the fact that we have this platform where they can get the the information monthly that you know maybe they only get to see us once a year yeah i agree well thank you thank you for taking your time and spending it with us you can reach us by going to lodestone training consulting.com you can email us at info at lodestone 
If you have questions or if there are topics or things that you want to hear us talk about, reach out to us. We'll be continuing doing, doing this podcast on a fairly regular basis. And we have all kinds of content, like Chris said. There's a lot of stuff that we want to get out to you and we want to share our experiences with you to help empower you. But if you have questions, specific questions, contact us, email us, and we'll answer those questions as best as we can. Again, thank you for your time. We'll talk to you soon.